Hi, this is Stephen Laddick. And I'm Kent McPhail. Welcome to What the M, the podcast about the mortgage default servicing industry. What the M is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes dropping every other Friday. Hey, Steve, how you doing today? Very good. Very good. Happy to be here today. Happy Groundhog's Day from Pennsylvania. I love it. Yeah. So it, isn't that groundhog up your way? Punks to Tawny Phil, and he did see a shadow today. So six more weeks of winter up here, and right on cue, it's going to be about 11 degrees on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a brisk, very cold 55 outside today here, so I, I feel your pain, man. Well, let's jump right in. We have a very good theme of our show today. Today, I am interviewing my co-host, Kent McPhail. We wanted to give our listeners a little background on who we are, what we do, and how we ended up doing a podcast to begin with. So, Ken, let's start. Where did you grow up and what was that like? Well, first off, this is, uh, yeah, this is very different. You know, we were talking about being the person having to answer the questions instead of asking the questions. So, uh, you know, I'll give it a whirl. But I grew up in south central Mississippi outside a little town called Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And, yeah, it was probably 45, 50,000 people. And, you know, I got to tell you, it was sort of an angelic setting to, to grow up in, to be honest. I mean, my, my father was a professor at the University of Southern Mississippi. Now, I went to a small county high school, which was everybody from first grade through 12th. So, you know, you knew everybody and everybody knew you. And yeah, it was just, it was a great time. My parents, with the university being there, uh, my dad is actually from Philadelphia, Mississippi, and my mom is from Boston, Massachusetts. And so very diverse background. But growing up there near the university, they made a point to bring all four of us boys, I was the youngest of four, to the various plays that were put on or musicals or whatever by the theater department there. And so even though I grew up in small town Mississippi, they did a lot to try to backfill what our education needed to be across the board. Uh, But anyway, it was great. Loved it. Grew up on a lake water skiing. Very nice. Very nice. It's always nice growing up in a college town because there's a, a lot going on in a college town. Is that oh. where you ended up going to undergraduate for your degree? There was never a question as to whether or not we were going to go to college. It was just a matter of you finish high school and you go to college. And in my family at that time, there was never really a question as to where you were going to go. Because my father was a professor at that point in time, as long as you maintained a 2.5 GPA, you went tuition free. And so that was like a very much a no brainer. Other than that, though, I was actually passionate about the University of Southern Mississippi. And we can talk about that when we when we talk about sports. But, you know, I'm a percussionist um, from a very young age. My parents would carry me to the football games in their arms and I would hear the drum line. And so from when I could think I wanted to be in the drum line. And so ended up at Southern Miss and marched my full time there. And it was a whole nother part of my life that that's kind of unfulfilled now. I don't I don't have much musical (laughs) things going on, but yeah, it was fabulous. It was just like the next step forward. I majored in business administration or general business. It was the exact right major for me. I think there may have been some things that would have helped me in law school with more writing, but I can tell you without hesitation that that background is instrumental in allowing me to do what I do and run my law firm and uh, do the things that I do in that regard. So yeah, it was, it was a great background. After you graduated, where'd you go to law school? How'd you pick your law school? 
My father, although he was from Mississippi, had gotten his PhD at Boston University. In my mind's eye, I saw myself going to BC, but then, you know, life took me a different direction. I chose to go to the University of Mississippi thinking that I would be there and in the state. And of course, everybody says, you need to go to the law school in the state you're going to practice. And I have a completely different philosophy about that. But that, that's kind of, it was like by default. I left Southern Miss and went up to the University of Mississippi. And I will say this, that in terms of a cat-dog love-hate relationship, <laughs> the uh, the people at, at Ole Miss didn't always appreciate me because my favorite teams are Southern Miss and whoever plays Old Miss in whatever it is. If they're playing checkers, I'm pulling for Valdosta State or Satan U or whatever. So, uh, so, so yeah. Well, where does Mississippi State figure into all that rivalry then? Uh, that's a good question. So years back, Mississippi State used to play, well, Southern, Old Miss, and State would play. And then we went through a fairly extensive period of time where Southern was routinely beating them, State in particular. And I don't necessarily blame them because they have a tough SEC schedule, but, you know, we parted ways. And of course, since then, they have both grown and, and flourished under SEC money. And we've sort of languished along, not so much flourishing, but, you know, good years, bad years. And I will say this. Uh, like our, our current basketball team is on the cusp of having the largest turnaround season in the history of NCAA basketball. And I think last year we won six games. And right now I think we're 18 and four. We're undefeated at home. And so, yeah, we're, we're having a little fun with basketball right now. So. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Which tailgating's better, Ole Miss or Southern Miss? Oh, the best tailgating is my tailgating. At <laughs> Come tailgate <laughs> with Kent. We have this massive dome. And uh, I will say this, I, hats off to the people in, in the Grove up there. I mean, they, they have some very, very nice tailgating facilities there. You know, a lot of those people go in coats and ties to tailgate and be South Mississippi. It's pretty hot. And I'm definitely a little more casual at the football game. So not not a big wear tie to a game guy, but... Yeah, we love the tailgating and, you know, love visitors, love people to come hang out. It's a very welcoming campus. and Looking forward to catching a game down there. Yeah, I'm going to get you down there this year for sure and, and show you what we do, show you a little more Southern hospitality. So I'm looking forward to that. So back to you, though. So you went to Ole Miss. What did you do when you got out of law school? So when I when I first got out of law school, you know, I languished a little bit looking for position that I wanted and ended up, of all things, working as an in-house attorney at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. And, you know, in hindsight, it was not a job that necessarily fit my personality type. I more wanted to be in court, being out, going, doing. And that job was strictly drafting and redrafting and molding major benefits packages for large unions, large companies, what have you. And so uh, what I can say without hesitation is like most job at the time when you're in the middle of it, you know, it's like, eh, not sure that I like this. But on the backside, I learned so much, again, that's assisted me in the practice of law and helping people with insurance issues, with helping clients with provider contracting issues and uh, and running my law firm, analyzing and dealing with employee benefits. So it was a good education. But after I, I was there for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, my wife, uh, she's a journalist and she was wanting to get to a bigger market. And at that point, I was already licensed in Mississippi and we had this vision that we would go move to Florida. So I took the Florida bar and passed the Florida bar and started looking for a job. And, and out of the blue, 
there was an ad for a law firm in Mobile, Alabama, and the ad basically said they were looking for an attorney licensed in Mississippi and Florida to do their Mississippi and Florida litigation. And I looked at that and I'm like, my gosh, this looks like a job written for me. I applied, interviewed, they hired me, and that's what got us to Mobile and, and in a great extent, uh, largely influenced what I do today. Yeah. Is that how you got into the default servicing world? You know, and I hate to say this, uh, you know, not not meaning a pun, but I kind of got into the default servicing world by default. <laughs> the, that firm was a creditor firm. Now, a lot of what they did was just straight unsecured debt collection, a little bit of secured work. You know, my boss there was a guy named Ben Stokes, and yeah, we're going back to the early 90s. And he, he really was a visionary for his age at that point in time and how he was running his law firm and the way he was utilizing technology. And I was there for about three years. And I mean, I always knew I was destined to have my own shop, run my own law firm. But I got extensive experience there on how to run law firms and how to utilize technology in a way to handle volume work. You know, as I rolled out of there, probably the next five, six, seven years, I sort of fell into the middle of the manufactured housing finance market that had blown up at that time. So I was doing work for Bombardier Capital, JP Morgan Chase had a manufactured housing division out of Cleveland, Green Tree Finance, which now, you know, you roll way forward. They're actually now primarily a mortgage servicer. And but that kind of pulled me down that path. Once I was doing that, you know, we started picking up some foreclosure work and what have you. And, you know, I thought I was the smartest guy in the world. I had five or six clients all in this specific part of the industry. And then right around 2000, that part of the industry just collapsed. We were able to maneuver through that, but it was an amazing lesson for me about diversification. So from that moment forward, I was driven about adding more mortgage servicers, really focused hard. We do a good bit of work in the auto finance world. So, you know, it really served us well, and particularly through the pandemic, when a lot of folks were struggling and having to lay people off, we actually grew through the pandemic with what was going on in our auto side. Plus, we always maintained a recovery department and the more servicing. I mean, that was dead in the water, as everybody knows, but we were able to not only survive, but thrive and grow. So that's kind of how I backed into it and have absolutely loved it pretty much ever since. That's great. Well, that, that's a good background of uh, how your firm came to be. But tell us a little bit more about your firm now. And uh, uh, you've had some recent name changes and the like. And tell us what's going on with, with the firm these days. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So the firm has been in existence for 29 years, and we currently have five lawyers, 33 support staff. We've got brick and mortar in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee. As I mentioned before, we do work for national auto finance entities, a lot of regional banks, some large credit unions. In looking forward, I'm always thinking about not where I've been, but where I'm going. And we did go through a name change, just recently changed the name to McPhail Sanchez LLC. Brooke Sanchez, she is definitely the heir apparent. And, you know, it's it's important for me to sustain what it is that, you know, I've built here and to continue to grow it because, to be honest, we just take a lot of pride. I take a lot of pride in the employees that I have. I have amazing employees. And, you know, if, if Kent gets run over by a truck, I want this to go forward and continue to provide a living and for people to make their house notes and, you know, live life uh, the way that we've been doing it. So that's a lot of what drives me. Hands down, what makes my firm great 
are the people that work for me. And there's no way I could do it without them. You know, we have, from a tenure standpoint, my longest paralegal who manages a vast majority of the recovery side. She's been with me for 25 years. My wow. lead. Yeah. That's fantastic. You know. um, I'm telling you, man. And, and she is she is literally a walking computer. I've got a bankruptcy paralegal that's been with me for 18 years. Most of my employees are 10, 11, 12 years now. You know, over the last three or four years, when we went through some growth in certain departments, we've now got some three and four year people. I'd stack them up against anybody. It's what makes my life good and makes the quality of what we do for our clients exceptional. That's great. Along that theme of exceptionalism, let's talk a little bit about some life philosophies and the philosophies that we live by. Are there principles or philosophies that your firm adheres to? Yeah, so... And this, I mean, I've got to tell you, this this is rooted all the way in how I was raised. Don't tell me something, show me. Don't tell me you're a good person, show me you're a good person. And as it relates to my employees, you know, even if you go to our website, one of the main statements on there is treat everybody with respect. It costs nothing. And we don't just put that out there as a saying. I mean, we live that, whether it's opposing litigants, defendants, opposing lawyers, court personnel, even internally. I mean, the fastest way to get voted off the island at this law firm <laughs> is to not be nice. I mean, that's literally one of our, our principles is be nice. And we've let people go that were exceptional employees that just weren't nice. And I'm, I can't <laughs> that what we do is hard enough in any given day. If you layer tension and meanness into it, and, and I will say this, you know, in this day and age, you know, particularly like in the federal credit unions or in the mortgage servicers, these individuals that we are foreclosing on today or taking a car from today may very well be their great customer a year from now or two years from now or what have you. And so it doesn't it doesn't improve my client's position one iota. I mean, I'm not compromising their position by being pleasant. We we fight hard for our clients. It doesn't help the case by demeaning or treating somebody else in a in a poor manner. Strangely, I will get to the end of, of various cases or foreclosures and we'll get to, oh, Mr. McPhail, thank you so much. And I'm like, I'm the bad guy. I took your house. And it's like, I know, I know. But, you know, you took the time to explain to me what was going on. And uh, and a lot of people just want a few minutes of being heard. And so that's uh, that's how I watch my parents live their lives. And that's how I choose to live mine. And if I can't practice law that way, I'm not going to practice law. That's that's just who we are and what we do. That's great. There's a lot of good lessons there and lessons to impart to our younger attorneys. Oh, gosh. All yeah. the time over over my 30 years, I am just shocked at the decline in the level of civility between lawyers. You know, it's uh, it's sad to see. And we need to get back to working we, with each other. I understand that opposing counsel is on an opposite side of the case, but it's nothing personal. You need to work together and you can still be cordial to each other. Oh, absolutely. I remember when I was first practicing and, and again, going back to Ben Stokes, salty old Southern lawyer and was tenacious in whatever he did. And it was a point that I could default some lawyer. And, and Ben was like, what? At that point, if I'd gone in and filed a default against some other lawyer in town, I would have gotten more abuse from the judges for having defaulted the other lawyer. And the, the truth of the matter is when you default a lawyer in that scenario, you're hurting the lawyer. You're not hurting the client because he's going to have to make it right. And you're compromising 
their ability to sustain their client. And so and, and it serves no end because the court will set it aside and they will move forward with litigation anyway. So it's a pleasant way to practice law without conceding your client's rights. And yeah, young lawyers are that that whole socialization of the young lawyers and professionalism. And I cringe anytime that I see somebody going down that path because, you know, I mean, I've practiced, you know, I've tried cases everywhere from Miami to South Haven and it can get really bad and, and, and it doesn't have to be the way and it doesn't make your life or their lives any better. I hear you. So with that, everyone has heroes growing up. Tell us about your heroes. So, I guess first and foremost, my parents, that would be the starting point. I mean, my mother, she was a very strong woman, ran her own real estate company for years. My father, fascinating individual, grew up outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi, a house, no plumbing, whatever drove him. He was the first person in his family to go to college, went to college, master's degree, got his PhD, and then he worked in education administration at the University of Southern Mississippi. And so um, there's actually a StoryCorps interview I did of him at one point, but he worked extensively in the late 60s and early 70s, mitigating between the local school systems and the federal government, creating integration systems in a variety of counties in Mississippi. And so uh, it was, uh, you know, he was he was doing some hard work at a point in time when there were a lot of people that didn't necessarily want that work done. And I admire him for it. You know, as a kid, I would have teachers that would pull me aside and say, your dad did so much for education in Mississippi. And I was like, uh, okay, you know, kid, like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. And then, you know, as I became an adult and focused more on that, that they would be my heroes. The other, the other group of people that I would consider my heroes, and, and this is a little bit different, but I've always been blown away by single parents that are able to do what they do. Like my wife and I raised three kids together and, you know, they're all wonderful grown, you know, young adults and just struggling to get the clothes clean and food on the table and the bills paid and all that. And, and that's with two, you know? And so when I see a, a single parent that manages to do all that, I'm like, hats off. I mean, those, those are heroes to me. Great. So that brings us around to the final question, a question that you probably know very well. Since you <laughs> ask it on every episode. So I get to ask it this time around. If you could sit down with the 20 year old version of Kent McPhail, what advice would you give that young man? So the advice that I would give that young gentleman, you know, sketchy young guy is that, you know, one of the things that I've learned throughout life is that you can learn something from everybody. There is art everywhere around you. And and I'll give you an example of this. When I grew up at one point, beautiful front yard down to this little lake, and it had a bunch of dogwood trees. And my parents decided they were going to put a little swimming pool in. That was, you know, they were like high living at that point for their, for their teenage kids. <laughs> anyway, this gentleman came in and it was like a backhoe. And I sat up on the porch and I watched this guy maneuver and weave this big, heavy piece of equipment in and out of these fragile, beautiful South Mississippi dogwood trees without as much as scratching a single tree. And it's like my point is that that guy, he is an artist. He the, the skill that he approaches that with. And I see that 
in all walks of life and anybody that focuses on what they do to be the best at what they do. And, you know, all the way down to if my air conditioner breaks at the house and a repairman shows up, I'm going to follow him around and I'm going to ask questions so I can learn from them. And uh, of course they may, they probably roll their eyes, but consequently I'll learn enough stuff so that next time the air conditioner breaks, I'm like, I go through like five or six steps or whatever before I even pick up the phone to say, no, it's not this. No, it's not that. So, yeah, I see art in people. And and I guess the last thing I would have said to Kent and Kent still relearns this lesson repeatedly in life. And that's strive to not prejudge people. Inevitably, when you do, you get it wrong. And whether it's some lawyer that's like, yeah, he doesn't really look like he's got his whole game going on. And then he boxes your ears and makes you look like a chucklehead or whatever, or just across the board. One example of that, I was looking for some wiring for a particular thing on a boat that I was working on. And I went into Home Depot one morning and there was this young lady that was in the electrician aisle. And, you know, I just kind of passed right by her looking for one of the old electrician guys and then finally got somebody. And then he's like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. And then he calls the manager and and the manager comes over, the whole store manager. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. And finally, the manager says, let me get the person that can help. And he gets on the phone and calls the person and the person that shows back up that is the person I needed was the little young lady that I walked right past. So don't prejudge people because you, you just don't know what they bring to the table. Very well said. It's been a pleasure getting to know a little bit more about you, Ken. So thank you for being our guest today on What the M. Well, appreciate it. I, I tend to ramble and so I hope the audience will forgive me as much. But anyway, it's a joy doing this podcast with you and thanks. And we'll catch you guys later. Yep. We'll see everyone at the, the NBA in Orlando soon. Take care. If you like what you hear on our podcast and want to hear some more, please rate, review, and subscribe to What the M on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to visit with us on social media, we can be found at What the M Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.